The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop using your daughter's DDR mat to play Strike Commander and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 234 with guest Frank Savage, recorded live Wednesday, April 25th, 2007. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now, bringing the just-in-time team system class with Joel Semeniuk on-site for your development team. Online at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows Forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the only man I know with an anatomically correct me for the we, gee, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's the second show of the week of Mix 07. It's Mix Week, and we're still not there, right, Richard? We still aren't there, but that's okay. But I heard it was good. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Uh, great show we did with Brad Abrams. Had a lot of fun. Boy, there's so much new great stuff coming out. There's so much stuff we didn't even talk about with Brad. Well, and Mix was just one big stream of announcements. So yeah. many things going on in the web space, especially. Well, I can't wait to dive into some of that stuff in more detail on this show, on Hansel Minutes, and on DNR TV. And uh, who knows, maybe you'll, you'll even touch on some of it on Run As, but... Uh, you better believe it. All right, well, let's read the emails. This one is from John S. Brown, and the subject is Mumbles and the Other Guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sounds like a movie, you know? Yeah. Dear Mumbles and the Other Guy... This is a rambling diatribe of life, liberty, and the inevitable divorce. Nice. Six to nine months ago, the radio in my car died. Since my car already had a lot of miles on it, 228,000, I reasoned that I would get a new car, so no point in replacing the radio. As you can quickly surmise, no new car, no new radio, and still an hour-long commute. One can only ponder their own thoughts for so long, so I stole my wife's MP3 player, my gift for her for her birthday, about a month ago, and downloaded my first podcast ever. And yes, I got lucky and downloaded the .NET Rocks interview with Scott Ambler on Agile, episode 226. I have been a podcast junkie ever since, so much so that my wife is demanding her MP3 player back and is threatened a divorce if I don't, quote, take those damn headphones out of your ears, end quote. 
Today I felt compelled to write in because the current episode with Jeff Atwood was positively painful. Huh. Not because it wasn't a great show. It was, but because today I was being chastised for, quote, asking for ridiculous hardware for my developers, end quote. I'm a project manager and a software architect with one of the Beltway Bandits, a.k.a. federal contractors, and working on a four-year software development project for a government agency. Wow. This is a system that integrates 15 separate databases, two web servers, 100-plus data entry pages, 50-plus reports, 3,000 users, and more than 500 gigabytes of data. He uses a WinForm client with Infragistics and VSTO to build 20-plus documents, .NET remoting, web services, crystal reports, and 4,000-plus source code files, which are compiled many, many, many times a day. We do all of this on crappy 2.8 gigahertz Dells with only 1.5 gigs of RAM and a mixture of 20-inch and 17-inch monitors. These are three-year-old machines, and I was only asking for an interim solution of 24-inch monitors and upgrades to four gigs of memory for a whole six developers. You'd thought I'd ask for limos to pick us up for work in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) See, I warned against this. Yes. But yes, it is the government, and they can only buy equipment for the whole agency at one time. Yes, the secretary surfing the web has the same hardware configuration as 90% of the software development teams. We have not enjoyed any item of Jeff Atwood's Bill of Rights, so why don't we buy our own? The government agency forbids us from using anything but their equipment. They'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars for overtime, but heaven forbid they make a small capital purchase for productivity. Dude, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it sucks. And this in the city that houses the actual Bill of Rights. It just doesn't seem fair. (laughs) He goes on. So why did I call you Mumbles? For the first 15 to 20 episodes that I listened, I kept hearing you advertise these jobs with infusion. It shrinks for a comma. Was it shrinks for far? Well, anyway, I didn't know what Greg Brill did at infusion, but I assumed it was for the American Psychiatric Association. (laughs) It wasn't until recently where the other guy, Richard, spoke clearly enough to understand shrinkster.com. Anyway, Carl and Richard, keep up the good work. I'm going to go cry my beer over monitors and memory. P.S. How about some swag to smooth the guy's feelings for when I tell them? (laughs) (laughs) Quote, I went to the boss to get you new hardware, and all I came back with was this lousy DNR mug. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to add the DNR mug into Jeff Atwood's Bill of Rights. That's what we got to do. Absolutely. Well, he's uh, John from Washington, D.C. John, you bet, man. I'll send each one of your six developers a DNR mug. There you go. Got to give them some love somehow. Absolutely. So, wow, Richard, that was a great email. It was. I really love it when people who can write send me emails. Go off on a little tangent there. <laughs> just and, and we've had a couple of emails about shrinkster.com. Yeah. It's, it's just like the other URL shrinkers. It's just it's written with .net, so we like it. That's why we like it. Yeah. Uh, I have an email as well. Uh, Richard and Carl, just listening to the DNR show on reporting where you were talking about using a SQL Server mirror to run your reports off. The only problem with mirrors is that the mirror is actually quite busy running all the same transactions as the principal and thus is constantly restoring state and is not available or online for you to run your reports off of. 
I guess you could use things like database snapshots to take an instant copy and run reports from that, which would probably be quicker than doing backup restores. I'm pulling into Waterloo now, so take care, and thanks for all the excellent shows coming out of PWOP. Best regards, James Saul, and that's Waterloo in the UK, as opposed to the University of Waterloo in Canada. But, ah. you know, just sort of pointing that out. And uh, actually, you know, James is completely right. If you're actually using the true database mirroring, you can't do anything with the server that you're mirroring to. That's a, a failover strategy. So there's mm. really quite limited. We were talking about techniques for making copies of data at intervals, whether that be log transfers or, you know, backup restore cycles. Lots of different ways to go about it. But mm. uh, thanks for clarifying that. Don't use database mirroring to report off of it. It doesn't work. And uh, see what you get for tuning in this morning. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so we got some code camps to uh, announce here. The Ann Arbor Day of .NET, May 5th. That's this weekend, this Saturday, I believe. It's shrinkster.shrinkster.com yes. <laughs> slash C-U-K. Also this weekend, May 5th, the Austin Code Camp at shrinkster.com slash O-9-E. That's O, not zero. O-9-E. Also, the West Michigan Day of .NET is going to be May 19th. You can read about that at shrinkster.com slash N-1-H. And the Philly.net code camp at shrinkster.com slash O-I-7. Yeah. And finally, the Raleigh, North Carolina code camp, Trinug, as they call it. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. You'll have to figure it out. Go to shrinkster.com slash O-1-7. O-1-7. Not zero, but O. And that's June 23rd. Now, we have uh, DevTeach coming up here May yes. 14th through 18th in Montreal. Montreal, Quebec. We will be there. We'll be doing Dunn and Rocks. We'll do, be doing a panel, uh, some sessions. And I hear Roy Osherov is going to bring his guitar and sing us some songs. There's going to be some jamming going on. Don't you hold back, Mr. Franklin. Absolutely. I know you will have your guitar as well. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, like also, Roy. I like listening to Roy. He's more clever than I am. So. He's, yeah, he's got some clever lyrics going yeah, on. Yeah, he's good. He's the Israeli Ted Patterson. No, no, no. He's he's the .NET Adam Sandler is what he is. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he certainly looks the part anyway. And the other conference in mind, TechEd. Right. TechEd US Orlando, Florida, June 4th to 8th, which may or may not be sold out. So if you're still on the fence, you probably want to go. Yeah. Go quick. We'll be there. Also, the New York tour, Greg Brill's Infusion New York City offer at shrinkster.com slash KH6. That's shrinkster.com slash KH6. If you want to go to uh, be teleported to New York City and get a New York City salary for a year and live rent-free in the city, check it out, shrinkster.com slash KH6. But you got to be badass to apply. Also, for badasses in the ASP.net area, uh, if you're willing to be relocated to Washington, D.C., or if you're in the area, go to shrinkster.com slash MMJ. There's a killer opportunity for you down there as well. All right, Richard, let's uh, bring on Frank Savage. Frank started in the game development business at Origin Systems in 1991. First game was Strike Commander, then was the lead on Wing Commander 3. He left Origin and went to work for FASA Interactive, or FASA, I don't know if you call that FASA, in Chicago, and did the first Mech Commander game there. FASA was acquired by Microsoft in 1999, 
and he finished Mech Commander 2 at Microsoft in June 2001. At that point, he left and went to work for Xbox just before the first Xbox launch. He worked for the Advanced Technology Group, which helped game developers get the most out of the Xbox console. And while working there, he began the first discussions around XNA, uh, and he was the third member of the dedicated XNA team as the development manager. And they've uh, shipped their first release and are currently readying the second release for shipment even as we speak. Will you please welcome Frank Savage, superstar. <laughs> How are you doing, Frank? Good. How are you guys? You probably uh, probably realize how many fans you have, but you probably try to keep a low profile, don't you? Um, yeah, I, I hear every now and then uh, in the forums uh, someone says, you know, oh, it's that Frank Savage, and then uh, points out that I worked on Wing Commander 3 or Strike Commander or one of the Mech Commander games, uh, or that they remember me from uh, having worked in ATG. I worked with a lot of game development companies while in the advanced technology group on Xbox, um, helping them get their games up to speed, um, finding performance issues, um, doing all that kind of work to really help them get the most that they could out of the console and, and really get the performance uh, that the console was capable of in the last generation. I uh, didn't really do that a lot with the current generation, uh, but I was pretty deeply involved in the hardware design for the current generation, which was fun as well. So, I got to imagine that being you must be like trying to swap flies all day long, you know? Hey, Frank, tell me how to get the cheat code in Wing Commander 2. Hey, Frank! <laughs> you know, you just must be you, at conferences or whatever. You probably have swarms of geeks that just you know, want to know. Is yeah, that there's, an there's that, and um, my parents keep calling me for tech support and, and <laughs> all that as well, too, which, which doesn't help either, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're all up against that. Yeah. Dude, does, everybody... your, mo does your mother play Wing Commander? Um, my mom's a huge gamer, actually, um, which is surprising, I think, both to her and me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> she started out um, uh, very much on PlayStation 1 and uh, played a lot of games on, on PlayStation 1, um, Xbox came out. She got an Xbox, was a very early adopter of that. In fact, would, uh, uh, well, so even before that, uh, when Wing Commander 3 shipped, my mom would go to the, the Comp USAs and the stores like that and say, you know, that's my son and, you know, <laughs> show the thing. And, uh, so they would give her the, they would give her all of the posters and the, and the, all of the, the marketing stuff that we would send them. Cool. Um, and so my mom at one point had a shrine to me in the bedroom, which was all this, <laughs> Wing Commander 3 and Mech Commander and, and Strike Commander stuff that she had accumulated. My, my origin, most valuable employee plaque was up on the, was in the shrine and the whole nine yards. So, uh, it's a little bit harder now, or it was a little bit harder until the, the XNA stuff started to really kick in. And, uh, cause in the advanced technology group, um, we were helping a lot of games, but I wasn't showing up in the credits for a lot of games and I could tell her what games were coming that were really cool, but didn't really, have that kind of exposure that I used to have. And, so have and, you come uh, to terms with the moral implications of your job, which is that you're reducing the gene pool of geeks everywhere by keeping them glued to their computers instead of going out to meet girls? Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're pretty active with that. Um, uh, but the cool part of it is that I'm actually actively training my kids to be geeks, and, uh, <laughs> and they're they're making a lot of progress. Uh, my daughter is three and a half, uh, runs around doing Star Wars quotes and playing with her little Star Wars action figures. Uh, and my son, who has uh, just turned seven years old, has uh, a couple of uh, level twenty and level thirty characters on World of Warcraft already. Uh, oh, very man. nearly finished Command and Conquer three. 
so he's a, he's pretty hardcore for a seven year old. He has his own laptop with uh, with a high end video card in it uh, because he kept playing with mine, and I yeah. couldn't get any work done at home. So uh, they're uh, yeah they're they're probably going to be where the savage line ends because they're never going to get away from the computer. But, <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> but I've uh, but I've done at least like what I could for this generation. So good, good, good. You know, now when you think of gaming, you don't usually think right after that. Hmm. Net. <laughs> now, but, generally, uh, uh, we found that that wasn't the case. But about two years ago, this started to change a little bit. When we were in the, uh, when I was in the advanced technology group, uh, actually three years ago now, one of the things we found game developers starting to do uh, was we had just finished a thing called Managed DirectX, and Managed DirectX was done by a single developer called Tom Miller, who actually now works on the XNA team. Wow, one guy did Managed DirectX. Yes, one guy did manage DirectX. <laughs> now that man has no life. <laughs> he, he didn't, and we, we made sure that he had no life for the first release of our product as well, uh, which he is eternally thankful to me for. Um, but the uh, the idea was with manage DirectX, you could actually go and write some, some really cool, very fast iteration Windows tools to do your game development. So you couldn't run .NET on Xbox or Xbox 360, uh, but you could run it on Windows, and you could build your tools for your game using Managed DirectX and using Windows Forms and things like that. And you could get tools up and running very, very quickly. So we began to evangelize this to game developers. And today, uh, it's hard to find unmanaged tools in game development houses. Very nearly everything uh, that we encounter is, is very, uh, uh, very .NET-y uh, in terms of how they built the Windows interfaces and the tools and Data editors and level editors and things like that for mm-hmm. their for their game applications are very very uh, C sharp .NET oriented today. And maybe we need to paint a bit of picture for folks who've never worked in the game industry about how game development has really been done up till now. Sure, this sort of in house build your own tools. Everybody's a C plus plus programmer kind of mentality. Exactly. So back in the day, uh, you know, it's hard for, it's hard to believe I'm saying that these <laughs> days, but it's been 16 years since I started doing this. And 16 years ago, we were, uh, you know, we were DOS. <laughs> it was 16-bit Borland compilers. Um, games were extremely difficult to debug because you had different segments and offsets referring to same addresses. It was very easy to have uninitialized pointers that randomly pointed to different areas in memory. Things were uh, harder <laughs> by, a, by a large margin than they are today. And the yeah. tools were ex- incredibly primitive. So at that time, even though we were starting to do 3D-based applications like Strike Commander and Wing Commander 3, the tools for these were very much, at that time, CAD-based programs. And they were designed to do very uh, very high polygon, very detailed uh, computer-aided design drawings rather than very, very low polygon <laughs> Mm. Uh, barely textured uh, 3D meshes that mm. could be rendered in the technology at the time because there were no 3D accelerators at that time. Right. So uh, just getting those tools to output something that the game could use was nearly impossible. And we wrote a lot of those tools ourselves. We had a 3D editor uh, called Eeyore that we wrote for uh, for a Strike Commander and uh, for Wing Commander 3. And that tool um, required a very different mindset than the 3D modeler has today because it was designed by programmers for programmers to make 3D art, not a 3D artist to make 3D art. Yeah. And it became very difficult to um, to really understand uh, what those guys needed because they themselves were so new to the business that it was hard to, to even figure out what, what would help and what wouldn't. As we moved on to the Mech Commander-style games, um, the tools got better and better. 
and more and more of the 3D packages began to understand that these people needed low-polygon models. Uh, but, okay, great, now I've got the low-polygon models. I still now have to build my terrain. I have to place all the buildings, or I have to lay out all the corridors. I have to put the traps into place. I have to put the monsters down. I've got to put some AI around the monsters. Uh, the doors have to open when I push the switch. Um, the race cars all have to stay glued to the track. I've got to get real physics onto the tires. I've got to put all the car data in, all the aerodynamic data, the track characteristics. What, what are the track characteristics when they're wet? <laughs> There's an enormous yeah. amount of data associated with games, and the data entry for that used to be very crack open notepad and start typing. <laughs> Uh, and wow. as as time went on, the tools got more and more sophisticated to the point now where there are games that actively use SQL backends to store all the data uh, that's going to go into the game. And then the SQL, uh, there's actually a report generator that runs on the SQL database that actually spits out the format of the of the game files that the game's going to need to actually be able to run. Um, I've even heard tell that there are games that have actual SQL embedded in them in order to be able to just query the database themselves and, and get the data out because it's so big and so hard to, to figure out these days. So games have gotten quite a bit bigger over time as well when we started uh, in the business. In that process, in the earliest days, were you not only tech guys, but were you coming up with the stories and all the artwork and all that stuff too? Or was it, has it always been a collaboration between the creative people and the developers? So when we first, when I first started in the business, it was just starting to differentiate where you were starting to see the, the programmers used to do everything. In fact, games, older games had what was called, what's still called today, programmer art in them. And you'd look at it and go, wow, a programmer did that, didn't they? Because <laughs> um, it was, because it was, you know, not so good. Um, and the, uh, the design of the game was very much a programmer-centric thing as well. Again, the programmers tended to be gamers, so we knew what we liked to play in a game. But sometimes it was hard to map that to a very large audience, for example. And so a game that, that had a very strong appeal to the programming staff that worked on it may not necessarily be a game that had a very strong appeal to a wide audience. So as time went on, the roles began to differentiate somewhat. And there was a programming staff that was responsible for the implementation of the code. There became a design staff, and the design staff was very much in charge of everything from the lowest level data entry all the way up through the high-level game design features, like how the AI should behave, uh, what the story was going to be, uh, what did we want the player to feel at this point in the game, uh, what was the flow of the story? Does this happen and this happen? How linear was it? Uh, how nonlinear was it? How, where, how, where could they go off into the weeds and explore for a bit and then come back to the main plot and stuff like that? Yeah. So all of that kind of stuff, um, it, it took a while for that to evolve into the design side. And then post uh, that era, there also became a whole bunch of dedicated artists. And the dedicated artists started out as very 2D artists because the games were still very two-dimensional, uh, even for the, you know, the scripted portions of them, like in, when we're telling the story in Strike Commander, uh, was all 2D art that was developed by 2D artists. But then 3D artists became necessary as the games moved into polygonal models that were texture mapped and 3D hardware began to become more prevalent. The game got more and more uh, art intensive on both a 2D and a 3D side. So today, a uh, typical game house has, you know, a couple hundred artists working on the game anywhere from five to, to 25 programmers working on it, and a design staff that is, you know, directly proportional to the amount of content that's going to actually be in the game, and that can range anywhere from uh, a dozen to, you know, again, a couple hundred like the artists, uh, if you're talking about something of the scale of like a World of Warcraft. So, Now, 
Um, wasn't Wing Commander an electronic arts game at one time? Yeah, so Origin Systems um, was originally an independent uh, game publishing company, and they were acquired by Electronic Arts in 1992. Oh, okay. All right, and so when did FASA come into that? So when I finished Wing Commander 3, um, I was actively looking for something else to do. Uh, Chris Roberts' contract with with Origin Systems was going to end in about a year with EA, and uh, he was going to go off and do his own thing, and he wanted me to come with him, and I was like, well, you know, I just finished this Wing Commander thing, and I kind of want to make on, work on games more, and yeah. you kind of want to go off and do Hollywood things, and <laughs> I'm not sure that I want to do that. And hmm. So um, I left Origin and went to uh, Foss Interactive Technologies up in Chicago, hmm. and I was the eighth employee there. I was also the first technical employee, so I was the one laying in the networking and emails and uh, Windows servers and things like that, uh, which was a very different role <laughs> than oh, making what, games. What confused me was Mech Commander and Wing Commander, even though they have Commander in the name, there's no relationship there company-wise, right? Correct. All right. Yes. I've, apparently, I'm doomed to work on Commander titles for uh-huh. the duration <laughs> of my career. So it's one of the reasons I got out of the game business was I, I feel what I've needed to... I've said what I needed to say in the Commander genre, <laughs> and I... <laughs> Really want to kind of move on to something else. And... Oh, that's funny. <laughs> You've made your peace. That's right. I, you know, I, like I said, I said what I needed to say. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I've explored it. <laughs> all right. So let's uh, let's fast forward to XNA. How did that all come about, and uh, and how does it relate to .NET? So when we started in uh, uh, XNA at Microsoft, uh, this was back in 2004 when Jay first announced it at Game Developers Conference. Jay. What we were looking at. Jay Allard, okay. who is the uh, head of the Xbox, uh, or was head of the Xbox division, actually. Um, okay. So he um, he had this vision for, let's make game development easy, or easier at the very least. <laughs> and what could we do to help core game developers, uh, people like EA, Activision, Ubisoft, people like that, to get their games faster, easier, uh, onto the platforms that we had? And we realized that while, you know, you can, you can make the hardware as easy to work with as you possibly can, it's all about the software. It's all about, you know, the tools and, and the compilers and, and being able to connect and debug and get profiling information and that kind of stuff readily from the console. Otherwise, it's extremely difficult to get any kind of uh, a good game done on it. So initially, we were tasked with trying to figure out how do we help these guys and, and what technologies did Microsoft have to bring to bear to be able to do that. As we began investigating that, we actually did a bunch of work on build systems, and we we did our first kind of hobbyist enthusiast thing in that we actually bundled up Mech Commander 2, all the source, all the content, and posted it as a shared source release. And you can still download that from Microsoft today. And it's about a gigabyte in size. <laughs> it's not wow. small by any stretch of the imagination, but it is the entire game. And you can compile the entire game out with Visual Studio 2005 uh, using the, the 8.0 version of the C++ compiler. We moved it all, modernized it all to that. Now, I'm sorry. This is Mech Commander, you said, right? Right. This is Mech Commander 2 Mech that Commander we 2. did here at, at Microsoft. So when we released that, we found that there was this enormous hobbyist and enthusiast community that was very excited about being able to, to get their hands on a game. But the number one piece of feedback we got from them was, cool, but this is real big. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to do something kind of small, and you've given me, you know, you've given me the Titanic, and I need a rowboat. Um, and so we, we heard that loud and clear from the customer base. While we were hearing that from the customer base, the .NET Compact Framework team 
uh, who at that time uh, was being led by Mike Zintel, came to us and said, hey, wouldn't it be great if the Compact Framework ran on Xbox 360? And we said, yeah, yeah. that would be really nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Why are you asking us that? <laughs> <laughs> and, and they said, well, because we would like to divert some resources to doing that. Is there any way we could get some, some alpha kits or whatever? And I said, you know what? I'll drive them to your building. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> here. <laughs> so that was in August um, of, God, what year is it now? 2007, so 2005. By November of 2005, they actually had it working on the Xbox 360 Alpha kits. And basically now when you what say they had, it, yeah. So we had the, the .NET framework, uh, a subset of the .NET framework plus managed DirectX ported to work on both on the .NET Compact framework and the desktop CLR, wow. running on Windows, a pocket PC, and the Xbox 360 with almost exactly the same code. Wow. Wow. This, Pretty exciting. Like, this excited uh, a lot of people over here as well, <laughs> and we went, "Huh, maybe we're going the wrong way on this. <laughs> maybe, maybe there's something to this whole hobbyist enthusiast community thing, and maybe we really can crack it open." Because the biggest hurdle we had, which was this technology, seems to be well on its way to being solved. <laughs> yeah. So we went back and did a prototype on the actual release Xbox 360 hardware, and. That was significantly more challenging than the alpha kits because uh, the release hardware had a very tight security model. This is a this is a console that we don't want people going in and hacking and stealing games and running their own stuff on without going through our certification process. So we had to make sure that in putting the .NET Compact framework on it that we didn't inadvertently make the bots really easy to hack and you can run anything you want on it and so forth. Yeah, that was, was my first concern, right, is that people stop buying yep. PCs and start buying the low-cost Xbox 360s. Exactly. So we uh, we made sure that the security model was such that the uh, the interface, if you will, to the Xbox title libraries or what the Xbox hardware can actually do was very, very tightly controlled by us and by the .NET Compact Framework team. So, for example, today uh, you can't actually get to the networking at all. There's no multiplayer um, connect connectivity right now, and that's mm -hmm. coming actually this fall, but there isn't any right now. So... We did that, again, on purpose because we want to make sure that, you know, we open it up in a way that supports the live business model, um, yeah. you know, meets all the business and, and political and socio criteria that exist here. Uh, technically, it's not hard to do. It's just making sure that we don't ruin people's business models. Yeah, doing it in a way that doesn't actually break live or introduce a new class of virus. Exactly. Or, you know, there's all kinds of things that go terribly wrong with that. <laughs> yep, Exactly. So we, they have the user mode sandbox pretty much up and running. Um, so the, the CPU that's in the Xbox 360, there's actually three CPUs. There's three PowerPC cores. Each one's running at three gigahertz. There's two hardware threads on each core. The, uh, all of those can run in a couple of different modes. The mode that the game runs in is essentially kernel mode. It's the boss. It can do anything it wants. We keep the games from doing anything malicious to other games or to live or anything else by going through our certification process. That's a large part of what that does. But again, if we're opening this up to the community, if a bunch of community people can go and create games using the .NET framework, um, they can't really, we want to make sure they can't inadvertently or advertently do that to people. So we created a user mode sandbox that, again, we, we had a very clearly defined way of getting out of. Part of the charter was also, let's find a way to make an API that isn't managed DirectX, which was actually, at the end of the day, a pretty thin wrapper over the existing DirectX functionality uh, in managed code. But let's make an API that's really cross-platform, that 
had a goal of being 95% compatible between Windows and Xbox, so there was a very high probability that your game would recompile and just run on Xbox 360 after you'd gotten it working on Windows, or vice versa. Uh, so we started off down that line. We also decided, look, let's make a framework that's extremely .NET oriented, that smells and feels like the rest of the .NET frameworks do, and let's make sure that we target it for the right audience. And the right audience for the first release was the very serious hobbyist and enthusiast and also the academics and students. So we've actually had a fair amount of adoption from universities. I can talk about that a little bit later on. But there's a ton of, of universities already using this stuff. In fact, they were using our beta bits. That's how eager they were to get their hands on it. Hmm. So we wrote a, so the framework component um, was being built while we were actually finishing out the .NET components. And this is the thing to keep in mind. And, and the, the Herculean effort that went on with an incredibly small number of people that shows you what you can do when you stand on the shoulders of giants, literally, is in March of last year, we had the prototypes up and running, and that was it. And we went back and, you know, not from scratch, but standing on all of this technology that we had lying around, we were able to go from March to December and ship a working version, both Windows and Xbox 360, that mm -hmm. allows you to run games on your retail Xbox 360. You don't need any special hardware. You can go to the store and buy one today and wow. connect it to your PC. Your PC can upload your games to your Xbox 360. It can play them. You can debug on your PC using C-Sharp Express. Wow. <laughs> All of that is fully functional and available. has been available since December. Now, is that the XNA Game Studio Express, or is that yes. something that... Okay. So that's the Game Studio Express piece, and to run that, you need C-Sharp Express first, and then we install into C-Sharp Express and mm -hmm. extend it. So now, why only C-Sharp? Just curious. Um, C-Sharp was the uh, most obvious choice for our customer base. Um, we were talking about game developer hobbyists and enthusiasts, which were typically uh, shallow C++ users. So it seemed to map to the C-Sharp universe uh, more easily than things like Visual Basic or, or uh, any of the other .NET languages that exist today. So, but it's, but it's Visual Studio. Couldn't, I mean, aren't we talking about APIs? Aren't we talking about a framework? Or are you talking about a, a boatload of source code? So there was actually um, Visual Basic actually isn't quite as .NET-y as, as uh, uh, it, it, it should be, <laughs> for example. Uh, it requires other DLLs to be present uh, from the old VB run days. And right uh, now, actually, yeah, so there is no Visual Basic support on the Compact Framework, for example. Um, Wait a minute now. So what, what exactly do you mean by that? You, I can write programs in VBNet for the Compact Framework. I can do that. But the Compact Framework itself mm -hmm. doesn't support Visual Basic as it exists today in the 2.0 iteration. Are you talking about, like, writing code on my PDA? Yeah. Oh, well, who would want to do that? <laughs> well, I mean, I want to write code the... for the PDA, but I don't, want to, I don't want to write code on my PDA. Well, I but suppose. that's the problem, right, is that we want to run the code on the, the Xbox 360, and that required DLLs that just weren't present. Do you mean you want to run um, Visual Studio on the Xbox 360? No, the, the VB run OCX DLLs and stuff like that have to be present on the operating system, and they are on the PDAs, right? But they're not on the Xbox 360, and we didn't have anyone to port those to PowerPC. I understand. To make that go. Okay. So Visual Basic got um, less interesting from that perspective as well, and that there was a lot more technical work to do. And again, we were under a very constrained timeline. We wanted to ship last December, if at all possible. Right. And we had the tech for C Sharp pretty much done. Okay. 
Yeah. And again, it, it mapped to the customer a little bit better as well. Yeah. Right. And it's pretty impressive to think this is all express. So if you want to develop on your Xbox, you don't need to buy anything except an Xbox. That's yeah. correct. Yeah. And the subscription. So that's the other caveat. <laughs> so what kind right. of stuff can you do and what kind of stuff can't you do with the, with the Game Studio Express? So the Game Studio Express today, uh, the limitations are basically mostly around the networking code. So we have uh, APIs that do all the graphics stuff. Uh, the graphics APIs are identical between Windows and Xbox. We have input APIs that are identical between Windows and Xbox. So you can plug an Xbox 360 controller as USB into your, into your Windows PC. It'll recognize it, download the driver, and that controller will behave and act exactly like it does when it's plugged into the Xbox 360. You know, when comparisons of web development components come into play, vendors start tossing in cliches like complete toolset of controls, superior performance, empowering users, and hosts of other buzzwords. But at the end of the day, what matters most to you, the developer? For our friends at Telerik, the answer boils down to simply getting your job done, like saving precious time by customizing stubborn controls at design time or skinning new applications in no time. And how about no browser compatibility issues? That's a big one. Take the Telerik Ajax offering, for example. The product was designed to quickly get you up and running with this new yet complex technology, and it just works. Forget about writing tricky JavaScript. Forget about making end-to-end -end modifications to your application. What's best is that you can count on a wide range of resources, sample apps, tutorials, active forums, and, of course, Telerik's renowned support team. After all, there is a reason why 89% of Telerik's customers choose to renew their subscriptions. Experience that for yourself by testing a trial version of the most reliable UI suite for ASP.NET at www.telerik.com. T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. So basically, you can take a, a C-sharp DirectX program and port it to the Xbox? Is that what you're telling me? No. Right now, if you use the XNA frameworks that are in the Game Studio Express, they will simply recompile and run on the Xbox today. Okay. So the XNA Game Studio uh, Express APIs are, are kind of like using the DirectX uh, APIs, is this what you're telling me? They're sort of similar? They're sort of similar, but again, they've been somewhat simplified right. for our target audience, and we've removed or at least made hid, hidden away somewhat the functionality that is confusing or hard for people to really wrap their heads around. I get it. For example, creating a device in Windows um, is actually a fairly long and drawn-out process today yeah. uh, to get at the 3D hardware, and it's magic in our universe. It simply creates the device and maps it to the current resolution of your screen and sets everything up, and you're ready to go, and you can just start calling update and render. So you took it up a level, basically, or a couple exactly. levels. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And we, want, we wanted people to not have to worry about, again, one of the biggest problems on the Windows side is that there are scads and scads of different kinds of hardware configurations. Right. We've abstracted away a lot of that as well so that, again, you don't really need to worry about the hardware configuration. What you need to worry about is that, you know, you've, you've – the only thing you really need to worry about today is the shader model implementation on the video card. So we only support 3D cards, and we only support 3D cards that have at least shader model 1.1 on them. Now, what is that? What is shader model? So, uh, video cards, 3D video cards today are actually programmable. And they're programmable using uh, what's called the high-level shading language, which uh, Microsoft developed a couple years ago. And what the high-level shading language does is it allows you to tell the video card how you want 
vertices to be transformed. Uh, you can literally specify program code to run for every single pixel on the screen as they're being rendered. Wow. There's actually a program that can execute for every pixel so that you can make the lighting look exactly the way you want, make the... You know, you can do bump mapping, you can do normal mapping, you can do all kinds of very advanced graphics techniques in real time uh, mm. that used to require offline renderers. With modern video hardware, it's actually really easy to do a lot of this stuff. Wow. And HLSL moves you out of, originally the shading languages were, were assembly-based uh, languages, and HLSL moves it up to a more C, C++ type syntax. Mm. And then there's a shader compiler that runs and it generates front-end code, and then there's a back-end compiler that generally the video card manufacturers uh, tweak out so that you get better back-end code and so forth as they tweak the drivers. So, Wow, this is exciting. <laughs> you, had to, you had to have a card that understands at least the 1.1 version of that shading language, uh, or our stuff doesn't even run. We immediately early out and say, listen, you don't have the hardware that can, that can do our stuff. Those cards have been around since 2001, so chances are, even if you even if you have a, a, a commodity laptop that you bought in the last two years, there's probably 3D hardware on it. You just don't know it, <laughs> right? Uh, which is really cool. Uh, most people don't realize that, and that's this is helping to kind of drive home the fact that these parts are very ubiquitous now. And you know what? You shouldn't be making casual games that are very sprite-based and boring-looking. You should be making more 3D-oriented stuff. And right. there's a lot of effects you can get away with today that that have a very broad reach, but people don't do them. Because uh, they don't understand the hardware that's there, and they don't want to go detect it. And if I'm a casual game developer with a three-month development cycle, I don't want to spend a month and a half figuring out how to detect all the different video cards in Windows. Well, with our stuff, you don't have to do that. We automatically do it for you, and we can actually you can ask what shader models here, and we can just tell you it's 1.1, <laughs> and then you can go great. And HLSL actually through the effect framework, uh, which is part of what we wrote, um, will actually go, and you can have all the different shader model implementations, if you will, mm-hmm. in, the same, in the same shader source file. So you can go in and actually say, here is what I want you to do for a 1.1 card, here's what I want you to do for a 2.0 card, here's what I want you to do for a 3.0 card. And it can all be in the same source file. It'll automatically, our effect framework will automatically pick the right one based on the card you have. You don't have to ask anybody anything, and you can just run. Wow. So what's in the Xbox? So the Xbox has a shader model 3.0 part. Uh, it was manufactured by ATI. Um, I know the this ATI is the 360 Magic, we're talking about, right? Yes, the Xbox yeah. 360 has that in it. Yes, um, we don't run on the Xbox One. So, I mean, in theory, if I want to write a game, then if I'm working on these games, it's in my best interest to have a a 3.0 shader model video card. Um, if you want to be able to run on the Xbox 360 and see what it looks like on Windows, yes. But the cool part is that if you already have an Xbox 360, it's so easy to just get it running on the 360 that you can let the Xbox 360 be your shader model 3.0 card hmm. and let your Windows machine be whatever it just happens to have in it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I bet the difference is striking. <laughs> it's, uh, it can be. The Xbox 360 GPU is, is really, really powerful. Really powerful. Um, as we're coming to find out. So we have uh, example games. So, you know, no, none of this would be valid without having some kind of data to back it up. Since we shifted in December, we've gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of games already done on it, which is very cool. In fact, even as we were setting this up, I got another mail in my inbox pointing me to yet another video of a game that someone had written that, uh, on our stuff. <laughs> So um, at any rate, this particular game was a racing game. Uh, it was done by uh, Xtreme in Germany. It was one developer, two artists, six weeks. And we were able to get the game running at 1080p resolution with 2x anti-aliasing at over 30 frames per second in managed wow. code. <laughs> and it's a managed... Yeah, this is... I mean, normally Xbox 
games before XNA, this was all low-level C++ coding yep. for yeah. performance. I mean, every game developer I've ever talked to is so performance-focused. Mm-hmm. That was always the issue. Now you're saying, I'm still getting 30 frames per second out of this thing, all managed code. Yep. So the, the, the trade-offs of having to get as close to the metal as possible uh, for for at least the game logic parts of the game are starting to to fade away because processors have become so powerful. We just got so much horsepower to play with. Exactly, mm-hmm. and on the graphics side of it, the shader stuff is you know again we shader compile it down to you know the the actual microcode that the shader that the graphics processing unit wants to use, and the managed code side of it is really just setting a bunch of state in the graphics processing unit. So eventually, essentially, what's going on is. We build up the command buffer that the that the graphics processing unit is going to use. We set all the state or the registers in that, and then we just say execute, and then we're done. And the GPU then renders this stuff as fast as it possibly can. And as fast as it possibly can, the Xbox is actually almost unbelievably fast. Well, tell us about Torque X. What's that? So this is uh, some third-party stuff, right? Yep. Torque X is a game engine that is uh, being developed by our partners at Garage Games. Uh, Garage Games approached us last year at GDC uh, when we kind of unveiled some of the stuff we were doing and uh, was very enthusiastic about being an early adopter. They took all of their libraries and converted them to managed code, all C-sharp, got on the bandwagon very, very early, and they now have a suite of tools and uh, game engines in beta form uh, that you can download that build on top of the frameworks and stuff that we already have. The cool part is we also announced at GDC this year that if you've bought the $100 subscription that allows you to program on the Xbox 360 and run on the Xbox 360 your games, you get a free license to the Torque X engines and everything else as well. So they basically make it even easier. They they add some sample code and some sprite stuff and Yep, so they have a they have a game building engine if you will that allows you to sit down and mock up a game very very quickly. Uh define uh, behaviors, talk about all that kind of stuff. They had their own scripting language behind it. They replaced that all with C Sharp. <laughs> um, wow. It's actually very, very cool. And uh, the so this last GDC as well, we had four people uh, sit out in public <laughs> uh, in the lobby bar of one of the, the GDC buildings. And those four people sat with their PCs and Xbox 360s making a game in four days. Wow! <laughs> in front of in front of everybody. I mean, the press was there. Web everybody was watching. Were there. Everybody was there, and they were watching these guys make a game from scratch, from literally nothing, using our stuff and the Torque stuff uh, in four days. And we got four relatively good games out of them. And yeah, when you say days. relatively good, it wasn't like Hangman, was it? I mean, no, what no, did no, it no. Do? These were these were actually compelling and playable. <laughs> wow. Uh, it was actually pretty amazing. We took the games to the the party that we had uh, that Microsoft has every year at GDC, and uh, had these the four games set up, and they were playing on this like 65 foot giant projection screen up on one wall. And uh, people they mobbed, they were mobbed the entire time. Uh, you couldn't move from the from the people who were non Microsoft people who just happened to be at the party. Just couldn't believe that this much game had been written in four days. Uh, using managed code and that it worked this well and and how did you do this and why did you do that and uh it was it was amazing how fast you can get stuff done in this in this uh, environment tell tell us about the creators club so the creators club is uh the $100 subscription so we require uh, a $100 subscription on the Xbox 360 that you pay uh as part of uh live 
So your Xbox has to be connected to live. You have to have a valid subscription, and then our host and launcher run on the Xbox 360. If you've paid, it that, they paid us that subscription, um, you are part of, uh, you are a premium member, actually, of the Creators Club. So the Creators Club itself is just the community. We want to build up an enormous community of people who are actively using our stuff, um, give them samples, give them starter kits. Um, I don't know how familiar uh, your audience is with the concept of the starter kit and the .NET stuff. Oh, sure. Basically, it's, it's an, we give you an entire game, all the content. You go into Visual Studio Express, you say new project, uh, space war game, or a new project racing game, and you get a whole space war game and a racing game. All the content is there. It's all lined up in Visual Studio correctly. Um, we have content pipelines, so the content is actually as sits as first-class citizens with the code files in Visual Studio so that it's very easy to get content into the game in terms of textures or models or meshes, mm-hmm. shaders, all that kind of stuff, uh, audio, all that is treated as, you know, data files that have to be part of the code as well, and they become resources that are very easy to access through the framework. And I'm betting that starter kit was a whole bunch smaller than a gigabyte like Mech Commander 2 was. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so we shipped the GSE that's on the web today with uh, the Game Studio The Game Studio Express download has Space War inside of it, and that's probably the reason why the download is about 80 megabytes is because Space War is probably a good 70 of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But Space War is a is a modern 3D implementation of the the original Space War game that was written on the PDP ones, right? And uh, uh, you can see, you know, 3D wise how the ships look way better. You get asteroids with real lighting on them uh, in the game. You can blow up the asteroids. You can blow up the other ship. You can buy new weapons. So again, keeping with that concept of kind of the Geometry Wars retro and evolved, we have a Space War retro, which is just the old line based version of the game, and then the evolved version of it, where the ships are much better, all 3D rendered with uh, all kinds of graphics and stuff. And again, all the source, all the content, everything you need to be able to dissect what we did and really understand how this framework works in a, in a real application, if you will. So I'm looking at the XNA Developer Center, which is on MSDN, mm-hmm. um, Google XNA Toolkit, and you'll get there. And you have a link on the left that says XNA Videos, and I noticed that you've got some... Uh, tutorial videos here, displaying a 3D model on the screen, mm-hmm. making your model move using input, and making sounds with XNA Game Studio Express and Exact. What mm-hmm. is Exact? So Exact is the sound system that we used for the framework that we have. We don't actually have any low-level uh, sound APIs there, so there isn't anything like uh, just play this WAV file or play this MP3 file or something like that. Instead, the Exact engine uses a tool to build up all of the WAV files, uh, WMA files, MP3 files, whatever you've got, and it builds them into what are called sound and wave banks. And those are just big files that have all of the, the sound data put in them in a way that makes them easy to stream on the Xbox 360 okay. so that they're not sitting all in memory all at once. And Windows has an engine for that now as well, again, for the same purpose, to keep you from having it all in memory all at once. Okay. Good. So the Exact, there's actually a separate tool, uh, the Exact tool, which ships with our stuff as well, that gets installed that actually allows you to edit those files and, and create new sounds, and you can change reverb on them and do all kinds of great sound engineer kinds of stuff with them. So I have a, a question. I don't know how you're going to handle this, but I'll throw it out there anyway. <laughs> sure. Um, what did you guys think about, what do you think about the popularity of the Nintendo Wii? And how is that, has that changed you guys at, at all in terms of uh, the way gaming is approached? So it's made us, uh, in terms of the XNA uh, community game platform stuff, significantly more exciting to a lot of upper management here. 
because it's a differentiator. It's something that uh, Sony and Nintendo both will have a very hard time following up with. So we have, not only do we have the capability to program the console in a way that uh, would be very hard for, for others to emulate, uh, short of, you know, installing Linux and getting libraries and, and getting all that stuff to work and then realizing, oh, wait, there's no actual contact with the graphics card or, or with the cell processors that are there. Um, we actually give you all that on the Xbox, again, minus networking today, but that's coming. But the other side of that equation is, despite the fact that we can now build all of these games, what we really want is this enormous community of game developers who are building them and then game players who are actually consuming them. We want to have this, this vibrant community of players who start to go off and actually download these games and play, you know, instead of the, the, Ten, uh, or I'm sorry, the tens of games that are in arcade today, uh, be able to play the thousands of games that that the community can actually dream of and actually create. And yeah, a significant fraction of them are probably not going to be so good, but there's going to be a lot of them that are really, really good. Well, and, and it doesn't take that many, does it? No, it really doesn't. <laughs> I mean, you've got this uh, advantage of scale. If there's thousands of people making games, exactly. we you know the average human can only play so many games. Give me a couple of dozen that are great. Exactly. And you got something going on. Yep, and it becomes a very different, uh, uh, very different universe, if you will, uh, to to live in. For example, I don't have to wait for um, these great game ideas to get through a publisher and and get done and everything else. The community can actually whip them out pretty quickly. We can see that it's a great game idea. At that point, a whole bunch of different possibilities occur. The community goes out and builds it into a, an, into a, into a much larger, more compelling experience. A publisher picks up the game and, and pays somebody to actually go and finish it. Uh, we pick up the game and encourage it to move on to Live Arcade or onto Silver Media and, and, uh, we publish it. Um, there's all kinds of possibilities where today the game industry is, is, as a whole is, it's hard to call it stagnant because there's a lot of good stuff going on, but quite frankly, it's a lot of the same stuff over and over again. So, and, so can you can you answer my question though? I mean, sure. I asked a question particularly about what's your reaction to the Nintendo Wii? You know, the controller, which is completely different mm-hmm. from anything anyone's ever seen before. Sure, but the controller guess, itself isn't the differentiating feature, right? Uh, it absolutely is. Is it absolutely? What, what, what do you play besides Wii Sports with it? Okay, okay, look, it's the most popular gaming console ever. People people uh, are reacting to this. Well, I guess I guess well, you answer my question. Well, people are reacting to it too, right? But, I mean, honestly, there are 43 million PlayStation 2s installed, and PlayStation 2 is still outselling Xbox 360 today. So, sure. <laughs> I mean, it... I, I guess my question is, did, did you guys... Uh, is there anything um, in the works uh, to to sort of go after the, the the cool kind of controller stuff that they're doing? There are. Um, unfortunately, I'm not really at liberty to talk about that. Okay, question uh, answered. <laughs> <laughs> so I can put it that way. I guess that's what I was getting at. Yeah, there's. I mean, we 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 certainly are interested in in understanding why I think the Wii is as popular as it is. Uh, I think the controller is certainly a large part of it, but I think it's the controller married with an incredibly great software experience yeah. that actually is the differentiating feature there. In exactly the same way that the Nintendo DS is a is a much more compelling game platform than a lot of other handhelds, for exactly the reason that Nintendogs and Brain Age are very great right. matings of that. And of it's that not about screen. the realism of the of the graphics, which is exactly. interesting. You know, exactly. It's about it's about gameplay 
Nintendo's got a very interesting culture. They have a relatively few number of development teams, it seems. They hold them much closer to the company, so they're much more company games. Yep. Then, as opposed to Sony, who will sell just about anybody a development <laughs> platform, and exactly. there's very little control over the games. There's a lot of games, but a lot of them aren't that good. Well, let's yep. talk about controller development. Is that a possibility, or is that left to the specialty boutique hardware shops to invent new controllers? No, I think uh, I think we're going to see some controller innovation uh, from Microsoft here in the not too distant future. The fact that you're using USB as your connecting technology really opens the door to that. You are, right, but I think. Well, well, here's the difference, though, right? If, so you've got USB that's attached to it, which means that yes, there's a there's a significantly larger potentially wow n- amount of hardware that you can plug into it, like right off the shelf too, which is the cool part, right? All you really need is to write a, a simple little driver module that catches the USB data packets coming off the port and right. then just hand them off, right? So that's the cool. That's right, there's the, a whole the, bunch of Japanese uh, devices that you could probably plug in there, eh, Richard? Oh boy! <laughs> exactly. And so right out of the gate, we have that advantage, if you will. Yeah. But the really cool part, and the reason, and the place where we come in is, again, we don't necessarily want the game studios like your your EAs or even Microsoft's game studios to be worried about the new controller, why don't we give it out to this community of, of hundreds of thousands of people who can think of ways to use this that, quite frankly, we can't even imagine today? Oh, I mean, I quite agree. I quite agree that the whole opening up of the development of these things to the community is all is what Microsoft's been all, all about in other development arenas, right? I mean, that's Absolutely. what the whole .NET community, what makes it vibrant, what makes it work. This is just taking that model and extending it. And I kind of think that there's more parallels here. I kind of see the gaming software business as a sort of accelerated, you know, software in in terms of of a way that we can look at our own future of business software. Mm -hmm. You know, like regular software follows game software because that's where all the innovation is because that's where the hype is and all that. Right. So, you know, you you can sort of see you can sort of see parallels there as well. And yep, I think it I think shows so. us what we're going to be doing in the future. Yeah, I think so. We're we're at the cusp of in-game development now. It's kind of interesting where we've had a number of smart people who've been in the business for a long time who are way outside of Microsoft who pointed to us using .NET and C Sharp and said, this is the future. Uh, game developers today are going to be resistant to this future, but they're going to be resistant in exactly the way that they were 15 years ago when we told them that C++ was coming. Yeah. And they were like, nope, C++ will never be performant enough. It will never be fast enough. I'm always going to write my game in C. You're never going to go to C++. Yeah. Today, or DirectX, the they had the same reaction as well. Exactly. And today yeah. there isn't a game in the world that isn't written in C++. And, and now you can just write a few lines of C Sharp and boom, 30 frames a second. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm it's, liking it's, that. It's changing, and I think that's that's one of the ways that that we're going to you know fundamentally change the business. We're going to give the the average Joe the ability to compete and and show up and and show us their game idea, right? Show us what you got. Yeah. The <laughs> challenge is that you know, modern games are developed with a hundred people, like you said, sure. you know, dozens and dozens of artists and mm-hmm. and uh, another dozen developers. And can you really get that kind of quality out of that smaller group of people? Well. You know, that therein well, lies the challenge. Where does this art come from? Well, that's the point, though, right? It's not a really small group of people. It's a giant community. It's hundreds of thousands of people all contributing to this. And what if my game were on some, some kind of uh, public access place like CodePlex or something like that, and I was actively searching, hey, look, I need spaceships. 
go make me spaceships. So we're, and, are we really talking about an open source type environment here where everybody can contribute to anybody's game? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Doesn't sound very Microsofty, does it? <laughs> no, it really doesn't. <laughs> it's it's real community. It's not just community oriented in, in in hey, here's my game. If you like it, go ahead and play it, and you know maybe I'll make it shareware. You can pay me five bucks if you love it. But you're actually saying here's my game and all the code. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly, and make the code better too, right? If you got a better idea for how the AI should work, please by all means. So <laughs> plug with, it in. with all these tools, you can obviously write thing more things than games for the Xbox 360. What uh, you know, like media center programs and things like that, I can see. Do you see things moving that way for the Xbox? We do. Um, right now, the APIs don't expose any of that. Unfortunately, uh, that was one of the the biggest requests we've gotten from uh, from the development community is they'd love to be able to get to the Media Connect pieces of it and mm -hmm. be able to write their own streamers and players for their, their Media Center PCs. And but you said the network uh, stuff will be exposed pretty soon. You can imagine uh, you know, subscribing to RSS feeds and getting BitTorrent clients on there and all sorts of great stuff. Yep, all of that is, is certainly possible depending on how open we make the networking, right? Because, I mean, we can also we can tie it so that the boxes can only talk to other boxes, that they aren't like, uh, general purpose socket. Yeah. Give me an and, IP, and I'll rule yeah. the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, it turns out that no matter how hard you try to secure that, uh, as soon as you say that you can, you know, uh, have a debug channel back to a Windows box, it kind of all flies it out the door anyway. So, so it sounds like you'd like to do that, but you just you're trying not to uh, hmm, make upset any partners or. Uh, business, like you said before, business plan, you know, business models that work exactly. around that. It's it's all about the business models and right. not not cannibalizing a lot of the people who are who are actively making a lot of money, you know, doing the live stuff and stuff like that. We want and, to make and sure have also made this platform possible. Right? Sure, exactly. you can't just mow them down along the way. No, no exactly. exactly. But I, I can imagine that some of them are have got to be a little bit. Uh, put off by the opening up of this platform. I mean, you basically opened it up to some serious competition, all the game developers. Mm -hmm. you know? So the funny part of it is is that the, the game development community itself uh, is is very interested in, in using this stuff as well. So to, I guess, kind of our surprise when we were at Game Developers Conference a couple weeks ago, um, we heard from a lot of uh, game developers who had been in the business for years and years who had finished their Christmas titles, were looking for something to do, saw our stuff uh, out on the web, went and downloaded it, started playing with it, and uh, came you know, to the end of January uh, getting ready to ramp up on their new titles. And instead of ramping up on a new title, they had a, a prototype done and working. And they were surprised, <laughs> uh, was what we heard over and over again, at how quickly and how easily and how performant they could get something up and running in an incredibly short period of time. And we actually have uh, two companies now that are actively building uh, Xbox Live Arcade titles using this stuff. Um, and they're getting ready to ship those out hopefully this summer. And they started as prototypes using the, the XNA Game Studio Express, got done with their prototype and said, well, why would we move this off of C Sharp? It's fast, it's performant, it works, it's the gameplay we want right here. Why would we move it? <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's pretty exciting. It's very disruptive to the existing business model. Smaller teams, shorter cycles. Mm -hmm. yeah. What are these it's, big guys going to do to justify their existence? 
Well, I think you're still going to see, in, in much the same way in the movie industry today, you've got a lot of direct-to-video, lower-budget stuff going on. I think you're going to start to see that be what the community does. And the game studios are going to be able to concentrate on their strength anyway, which is the blockbusters. Right. And the biggest problem they have today is they have to fund, you know, 15 startup blockbuster movies to get the one or two that come out that are actually worth anything that they actually make all their money on. Right. And they won't have to fund 15 startup ones anymore. They can fund five because they know that all the rest of the games are either going to come from the community or they can go and leverage the community ones that are already done. And, and I got to think that, you know, if a if four if a four guys can make a game in 4 days, then just think of what, you know, a big company can do with the resources that they have now with the technology they're using now. Exactly. You know, just kick them up a notch and, you know, yeah, can I have this uh, the full version of this game, which comes on forty four DVDs? You know, <laughs> yeah. comes on a hard drive. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then we get into an interesting angle on this, which is the distribution costs around games are non trivial. Yep. Uh, let me show off my geeky gaming chops and say, where does something like Steam fit into this equation? Sure. And, and what is Steam, by the way? So Steam is the distribution mechanism that Valve uh, created for uh, its Half-Life products and actually a, a significant number of games, uh, at least 20-odd that I can think of, uh, yeah. using this as their distribution mechanism now. And so you're getting these sort of indie-ish games that probably wouldn't have made it on the shelves, exactly. but I can download them for 20 bucks via Steam. Exactly. And there's a whole, there's, I think there's pretty clearly a business model around that. And, and we're the kind of thing that, you know, helps drive content into that, into that model, I think. Well, especially if you can make it a fully public model that I can develop this game and, and test it and package it in this space and then say, let's roll it out to the, to the, uh, the marketplace. Yeah. Sell it for five bucks. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Disruptive is the word of the day here. <laughs> So how long has the uh, how long has the uh, Studio Express been available? You said it, it it just started shipping. Yeah, we started in December okay. uh, of last year, and we're getting ready to roll out the second release, uh, which is more of a um, more of an incremental uh, release than the than the kind of giant one we just did. So incrementally, we're adding things like 3D audio support to the uh, to the Exact audio engine that's already there. A lot of people have asked for, hey, you know, you give me all these 5.1 speakers, can I please just put the sound someplace other than right and left? Yeah. Um, so we said, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so we added that. Um, probably the biggest thing is the fact that right now, if I want to share my game with uh, someone else, I have to share all the source and the CS proj and everything else to, to for them to be able to actually play it. They have to actually compile it. And in the process of compiling it and deploying it to their Xbox 360, uh, it winds up on the Xbox 360, and then there's a browser on the Xbox 360 that lets me look through all the games that I've uploaded to my Xbox 360 and play anyone I want. But that initial deployment, if you will, to my Xbox was still happening through Visual Studio, and of course, to do that, I needed to compile it and, and build all the code. Uh, in our April release, which is coming out here uh, very soon, you'll be able to actually bundle up all of the pieces that the Xbox needs to be able to run, and by double-clicking on that bundled thing, it'll actually deploy it to the Xbox for you. So you won't need the source anymore. You can actually create a, a package, if you will, of a game that can be installed from any Windows-based PC to any Xbox 360, so long as that Xbox 360, again, has the subscription on it. Right. So it's still a PC-to-PC -PC distribution model. Hmm. Yes, right now. Someday, maybe we'll have an Xbox-to-Xbox -Xbox distribution model. Yeah, we're actively looking at what 
some of that looks like for the fall release, which is coming cool. uh, this fall. Uh, doing a lot more, a lot more around community and sharing, and and how does somebody without a subscription be able to play these games is the problem we want to solve for this fall. Right, maybe a different kind of subscription that that is just for getting access to the, playing the games rather than being a contributor. Exactly. Now, here's something that uh, if it's going to be so easy to create these games, I can imagine. Um, some high budget album projects that instead of you know uh, bands releasing a CD or you know series of MP3s through iTunes, they release a, an Xbox uh, version of that which plays the tunes through the Xbox, lets you select them, and then has sort of these interactive art things going on. Like mm-hmm. I think Beck would have a field day with this. Sure. <laughs> Don't I was you? thinking yeah. old no, field, no, no, but yeah, same sort of thing. That's- it, it, it's one of the things that we've been talking about. I mean, Origin originally built Wing Commander 3 as an interactive movie, and then the interactive right. movie thing kind of went by the wayside, and everybody was like, yeah, whatever, all games are that way now, and it's not even worth billing them that way because they all have to tell some story or nobody plays them anymore. Right. Um, and we, I think we're at that cusp again where where the game experience is going to start to bleed over into other media types. Where you're What's start a game? To, yeah, well, what's a game exactly? And right. the, like my the pun here likes to argue that American Idol is a game. <laughs> that it's that it's not actually a TV show. It, it or, is. And or, Howard or Stern is winning. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's because because people are actively playing. You know, they call in and and try to get the person they don't like off the show, and right. people yeah. game it right. And that's yeah. By by some definitions, that's a game. And maybe maybe they all are. And maybe we're about to see that kind of. You know, this is this is one of the biggest things. Is how do we get you know, there's a there's a a fairly large community of hardcore gamers, and these are the guys that, you know, will stand in line to buy Halo Three and and new consoles and those kinds of things. But there's a a fairly significantly larger audience who play casual games, who play things like Hexic on Windows or Solitaire or those kinds of things, and those are all games too. And what what's been difficult in the industry is how do I monetize those kinds of very casual small experiences and and people like Oberon and Popcap have figured out how to do that and they make casual games now and they target it at those audiences and they make pretty good money doing that. I think the community is is poised to open it up even further because instead of having very targeted casual experience at a specific audience or segment, you're going to get these casual experiences that aren't really games that are going to that are going to blur that line even more. Yeah. And they're going to be the kind of things that people want to experience and play and download and do things with that you know, traditional business models are going to be hard to are going to be hard pressed to understand how to how to monetize and we're spending a fair amount of time today uh, in our organization trying to figure out, you know, when that happens, uh, not if, but when that happens, how do we monetize it and what are the kinds of things we can uh we can do to help make that happen and and make a lot of money from it so well i think we've come just about to the end of our show here okay and uh i want to close this uh show with a joke because this has been kind of fun for me and why not just go out with a bang so i gotta tell you this new joke frank uh so a couple software guys so a couple developers are talking in the cafeteria at lunch and one says uh guess what Yesterday, I met this awesomely gorgeous blonde in a bar. The other guy says, really? What'd you do? He says, well, I invited over to my place. We had a couple drinks. We got in the mood, and then she suddenly asked me to take her clothes off. The other guy says, you're kidding me. He says, yeah, I took her mini skirt off, and I lifted her and bent her over my desk next to my new laptop. He says, really? You got a new laptop? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, uh, yeah, I can identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> kind of brings it full circle from what we were talking about earlier in the show. Yeah, it, it, my wife often brings up the fact that it's a wonder that we have children at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, Frank Savage, thanks for talking to us today, and great job. Congratulations. My pleasure. Thanks. And I'll be looking forward to, uh, to messing around with this myself. Cool. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. <laughs> .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 